Our first reading is taken from Romans chapter 14, verses 1 to 23. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome them, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes they may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed them. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before their own master that they stand or fall, and that person will be held up, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in their own mind. The one who observes the day, observe it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since they give thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and give thanks to God. For the one of us live to ourselves, for none of us lives to, of us live to ourselves, and none of us die to ourselves. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or sister? Or you, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or sister. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother or sister is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by humankind. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what they eat. 
It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother or sister to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on themselves for what they approve. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you, also with you. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Mark. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And a leper came to Jesus, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Remaining standing, let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit be our teacher this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand your word to each of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. When we graduated from high school, each of my siblings and I chose to take a year off before going to university with the encouragement of our parents to attend a Bible school somewhere in the world. I chose Cape and Ray Bible School in England and then Tarenhof in Austria, spending a term in each. And while Austria stood out and was my favorite for the sheer beauty of the mountains and the school, it was a lecture that I heard in England given by the principal of the school, Rob Whitaker, that had the most profound impact on me that year. It was this lecture that introduced me to a word that I have never forgotten. Splagnizomai. Splagnizomai. A kind of awful-sounding Greek word. One whose meaning is beautiful. The deep, life-changing compassion of Jesus. Splagnizomai. It's a compassion that invites us in and in turn allows us to invite others into the beautiful kingdom of God. We're nearing the end of our sermon series on belonging, lessons in kingdom hospitality. And each week we've been pressing a little deeper into what hospitality can look like, can be. Last week, Tim took us into the difficult terrain of showing hospitality to our enemies, to those who have done us wrong, 
people we feel unsafe around. Asking the question, how can I embody the grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness of God for this person in this moment? And today we're continuing to press into that question by looking at those who may not be our enemies, per se, but may be equally difficult to love for different reasons. Those whom we experience for any number of reasons to be physically or spiritually or socially repulsive, off-putting, offensive. And the key to all of this is found in this word, splagnizomai, compassion. In first century Israel, there was one category of people in particular who were seen as physically, spiritually, and socially repulsive. And repulsive is a strong word. I don't like using it, but I'm using it intentionally because that's how these people were experienced. They were cut off from their communities, shunned by their families, prohibited from being in populated areas, excluded from temple worship, and feared by many. They were even required to call out, unclean, unclean, as a way of keeping people at a distance. These were the people who had leprosy. Leprosy, a very dreaded skin disease, infectious skin disease that would cause a person to lose feeling, to lose sensation, eventually leading to loss of limb and disfigurement. A person with leprosy could accidentally cut off a finger or break an ankle or even stick a hand into the fire without even noticing. They wouldn't feel anything. And so sores and infections and amputations were inevitable. And no one knew how it would spread. So a person with leprosy was immediately ejected from their community. They were sent away, losing any source of income and losing all of their relationships and belongings. Anyone who had contact with them was also seen as ritually unclean, cut off from temple worship until they had performed all of the cleansing rituals. And all of this makes the story that we just heard from Mark 1 absolutely incredible. A leper came to Jesus, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. And moved with pity, moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. There are many remarkable things about this little passage. The leper defying all social norms to come near to Jesus, something he shouldn't have done. The leper having no doubt that Jesus was able to heal him only doubting his willingness. And Jesus' response. I think this has to be my favorite verse in the entire Bible. Moved with compassion, he reached out his hand and touched him and said to him, I do will. Be clean. That word, compassion, or pity, is the Greek word splegnizomai. And this word isn't used very many times in the New Testament, and that's the only place it's found. And when it is used, it's always used by or about Jesus, with one exception that I'll get to later. Splagnizomai, the word comes from the Greek word for guts, 
splagna. And when we're talking about emotions, today when we talk about emotions, we say we feel it in our hearts. Back then, they felt it in their gut, in their bowels. That's where the seat of the emotions were. And so compassion is felt as a gut-twisting emotion. But the splagna also refers to the life-giving parts of the body, both men and women. And I won't fill in the blanks here, but the life-producing parts can be the places that hurt the absolute most. I'm not going to like fill in all those blanks. You get what I mean. So if we draw on the full sense of this word, the compassion that Jesus felt for this person with leprosy kneeling in front of him was an immense pain, felt at the very depths of his being, and a pain that drove him to bring life. Jesus didn't flinch away. He came in right close, and he reached out past any discomfort he might be feeling, and he touched the leper. He didn't need to. Jesus could heal from a distance. But the person who likely hadn't felt any human touch in years felt the warm hand of Jesus on him. And I wouldn't be surprised if this was just as life-giving to his soul as the physical healing was to his body. So we might ask, what is the equivalent of this story for us today? There are still people who live in our world with Hansen's disease, as it's now called. And we know now that it's far less contagious than it was thought then. A few decades ago, we may have said the equivalent of leprosy would be those living with HIV or AIDS, and maybe that still is the case for some today. Or maybe we're more reluctant to come near those who are street-involved, or those who have poor hygiene practices, those who are under the influence of drugs or alcohol, or maybe those who are just acting that little bit odd on the streetcar or subway. Tim, in his Rector's Rhetoric in the most recent print magazine, said this, when we encounter someone who doesn't look or behave how we would expect, there is a natural fear that rises in us, fear of the unknown, fear that they may behave towards us in ways that are dangerous or unexpected. It would have been natural to feel fear regarding those with leprosy in Jesus' day. Catching it had severe consequences. And so sometimes our fear is working to keep us safe and should be listened to. But sometimes, sometimes it has a lot more to do with what others think than actually what is keeping us safe. One of the things that is most astounding about Jesus' ministry is his utter disregard for what other people think. We see it in the story of the leper as he breaks the social conventions to actually come near the leper. He shouldn't have done that. We see it in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. He talks to a Samaritan and to a woman, and he shouldn't have done either of those things. And we see it in him spending time with tax collectors and prostitutes. Time after time, Jesus ignores what people might think and draws near in love. And sure enough, the people murmured, and they wondered, and they questioned his integrity, and even his sanity. And in the end, 
It was too threatening, this radical form of love that breaks these social conventions, this compassion and hospitality that extends to the most despised and rejected. And so Jesus, too, ended up despised and rejected. Moving to our reading from Romans 14, and on the face of it, it has very little in common with this story of Jesus healing a man with leprosy. But I think it actually has everything to do with it, because I think it's pushing that same question of hospitality into a disruptive place, a place where showing love risks causing offense. Paul is stepping into conflict, as he often does. The church in Rome is disagreeing on food laws. What is okay to eat and what isn't? And it's not 100% clear, commentators disagree a bit on this, but he's likely talking about meat and wine that has been sacrificed to idols. Is it okay to eat it or isn't it? And the bigger question behind this is, what did it mean for Gentiles to be Christians? And what about Jews? What did it mean for Jews to be Christians? Which laws were important and for which groups? And most importantly, how do we convince people who think differently that they're wrong? Well, we may not care much about food laws today. Maybe we do. There are people who have very, very strong feelings about what to eat and what not to eat. But there are many, many questions in the church and in society that have just as much power to divide, to build walls, and to break community on as deep a level as food laws and even leprosy did. Paul isn't interested in solving the question about which side is right in Romans 14. That is not the point, he says. The point is and always has been love a welcome and a hospitality that shows profound love and respect for the other person, for who they are in Christ, regardless of what they believe. Accept the one whose faith is weak, without quarreling over disputable matters, Romans 14 verse 1 says, and disputable matters, anything that is not the grounding of our faith, Christ died and risen. Other versions have Verse 1 saying, welcome, the one we heard this morning said, welcome the one. And this word means to welcome into one's fellowship and into one's heart, opening up the walls. An open invitation to relationships, not for the point of arguing, not for the point of changing their minds, simply to show love. We are not good at this in church. We get scared. We get scared that if we're seen with the wrong person, we will be judged by their beliefs and not our own. We get scared that we will be seen condoning what we see as sin if we don't openly condemn it. We're scared that somehow it's going to damage our witness and damage the gospel. Paul, in Romans 14, has some surprising things to say about this. He says, we're, we're supposed to figure out what we believe on any given topic, yes. We're, we're to come to a place through prayer and trust in the leading of the Holy Spirit where we do know what we stand, where we stand. 
But once we're there, I don't know if you noticed Romans 14, verse 22. It says, whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Keep it between yourself and God. Be faithful in your actions to what God has revealed to you. And then trust that the person opposite you or the person beside you in the pew also has a relationship with Christ and is also being faithful to God. And then do whatever is in your power to make that person feel loved and welcome. And if that means giving up some of your freedom so that they may feel more comfortable, Paul says, you should do it. It's not hypocritical. I think that's what we fear. It's not denying what you believe. It's embodying the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of God in that moment to that person. And Paul practiced this himself. 1 Corinthians 9 says, Though I am free from all, he's speaking, Paul's speaking, I have made myself a servant to all so that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became like a Jew. I acted like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law, so that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not outside the law of Christ, so that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means, I might save some. The Bible never says that we will be known by our complete agreement on all topics, but that we are to be known by our love. I have a personal example of a time this was shown to me. I grew up in a church, a very small church, much smaller than this, that was planted by my grandfather, my maternal grandfather. And it was a small non-denominational church, gospel church in northern Manitoba. That church didn't allow women in leadership. My mother was not even allowed to lead the Bible study that included men in it. And this this was a position that my grandfather also held. And so a number of years ago, when I was discerning a call to the priesthood, I decided I needed to call him up. So I called him, and I didn't know what his response would be. I said, Grandpa, I think I'm going to become a priest. Well, he says, they ordain women now, do they? He's got a very gruff way of talking. Yes, Grandpa, I replied, not adding that they have been ordaining women in Canada since 1976. Well, he said, and this is the part that blew me away, if you are looking the Lord in the face and this is what he's telling you to do, you better go do it. Isn't that amazing? It blew me away. I don't know if my grandpa's theological views on the ordination of women have ever changed, but I learned that day that it didn't matter. He trusted that I had a relationship with Jesus and that this was where Jesus was leading me and he respected that. And our relationship actually grew much closer after that as he shared tips and tricks on pastoring. He always thought he would have a grandson who went into the ministry and he didn't. He had a granddaughter and he accepted that. And so we started talking about how to pastor and he gave me sermon ideas 
I have a little book here. And this holds a record of his pastoral visits in northern Manitoba. There's a little line at the front that says, this is the pastoral journal of Abe and Linda Fraze, my grandparents, while they pastored in Lost River Mennonite Church in the 80s and 90s. And I asked him, I found this a while ago, and I asked him if I could keep it and if I could add to it, if it could become my pastoral journal, and he was delighted by this. So how do we do this? How do we come to this place of radical, disruptive hospitality, a place that is neither condoning nor condemning? How do we find the courage to be with people who may offend or repulse us, to offer this kind of hospitality or compassion, this gut-wrenching compassion, in which our heart reaches out to those in need around us to draw near and bring them into a place of community. It is not something that we can just manufacture. It will fail us if we try too hard. It comes from truly understanding two things. And the first is realizing that we were the repulsive ones. We were the spiritual lepers. We were the offensive ones to God, the ones who said and believed and did all the wrong things. And Jesus came to us anyway, and he crossed that divide, and he crossed all the social barriers, and he touched us, and he said, I am willing to be in your presence. I am willing to show you love. Be made clean. And the second thing, in our own current need and weakness, Jesus is still showing compassion on us. The other places that the word splegnizomai is used in the New Testament, for the grieving, Jesus has compassion on the widow of Nain when he sees her grieving her son. For the sick, Jesus has compassion on the blind and he heals them. For the confused and helpless, Jesus has compassion on them. He says they're like sheep without a shepherd. For the hungry and tired, Jesus says, I have compassion on them because they've been here three days without food. For the beaten down, he tells the story of the good Samaritan who has compassion on the one lying by the road. All of this is the word splegnitzamai. And for those who have lost their way, in the story of the prodigal son, the father has compassion on the one who has run away. Do any of these apply to you this morning? Are you grieving? Are you sick? Are you confused and hurting? Are you hungry or tired? Are you beaten down? Have you lost your way? Jesus has gut-wrenching compassion for you. He aches for you. And he longs for you to know his love. Rob Whitaker, in his lecture at Cape and Ray, says, the things that you most struggle with are the things that most qualify you for the love of Jesus. It is in truly accepting the compassion of God for us that we are able to feel Christ's compassion 
living and growing inside us and to offer it to others in return. And that is the answer. It's not our own compassion. It's Christ's that we have accepted, that we have felt, and that we can now offer. I said that there's one more place in the New Testament where the word splegnizomai is used and it's not used by or about Jesus. And that's found in 1 John 3, 16 to 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother or sister in need, yet closes his heart against him, does not feel splegnizomai towards him, how does God's love abide in him? The compassion of Jesus once felt has no option but to flow to others, drawing them into fellowship, drawing them into the warmth of Christ's love. Does this mean risking our own comfort or financial security for the sake of the person who has nowhere to sleep? Maybe. Does it mean risking our reputation to show love to someone who has been cancelled, even if we don't agree with them? Cancel culture is the world's way of dealing with differences and offenses, not Christ's, not ours. Brothers and sisters, beloved of Jesus, while we were yet sinners, cut off and helpless, he felt splegnizomai, a gut-wrenching compassion for us. And he has drawn near, and he has touched us, and he has made us whole. And it is his compassion that lives in us, giving us the freedom and grace to offer it to the world. Thanks be to God. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.